Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the History of Freedom and Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 Hello, this is Leslie Gist, and you're listening to the Gist of Freedom. We are experiencing a little technical difficulties. Just hold on one second, and we will have our guest on the line, Arthur. Mr. Arthur Brown, he will be talking about um, the first New York Police Department black police officer. So hold on, please. Okay, we're all on the line. Um, Preston, can you hear me? Hello. Okay. Mr. Brown, can you hear me? Yes, I can, loud and clear. Wonderful. Preston, are you on the line? Okay. Uh, I see Preston on the line, but he's not talking. We will go along. With the interview again, this is Leslie Gish. You're listening to the Gist of Freedom. We have a great guest on tonight, Mr. Arthur Brown. Mr. Brown, can you please introduce yourself to the audience, please? Okay. So professionally speaking, uh, I work at the New York Daily News. I am the paper's editorial page editor. And the reason that I'm on the uh, program tonight is that I am the author of One Righteous Man, Samuel Battle and the Shattering of the Color Line in New York, which is a biography of New York City's first African-American police officer. Wonderful. And I read that you were inspired and you, you, you got most of your material from Mr. Langston Hughes. Could you explain? Okay. Yes, I can. In 2009, an amateur historian knew about Samuel Battle knew that Sam Battle had been the first to break the the NYPD's color line, knew that it had been an incredibly tough fight, and knew that in 1919 a crucial event had taken place in Samuel Battle's career at the intersection of Lenox Avenue and 135th Street. So he persuaded the city to put up a sign naming that intersection Samuel Battle Plaza. The Daily News did a small story about it. 
the paper called Sam Battle, the Jackie Robinson of the NYPD. I had worked at the Daily News at that point for more than 35 years. I had covered just about everything there had been to cover in New York City, including the police, including relationships between the police and the black community, including Ben Ward, who was the first African-American police commissioner. And I realized that I'd never thought about where had it all begun? How did it all start? Who had been the first person, the first African-American to join the force? So I began to do a little bit of research. He joined the force in 1911, so there really wasn't all that much to go on. But then I came across Sam Battle's grandson, who knew him as a little boy and had little boy memories. And in the course of our conversation, his name is Tony Chiro. Tony asked me whether I knew that in 1949, Sam Battle had hired Langston Hughes to write his biography. It was never published, but Tony had the manuscript. And that opened the world to me to be able to research the life of Samuel Battle and to take advantage of the work that Langston Hughes had done with Sam Battle. Wow. So they had this manuscript in their possession, or did you have to go to the Schomburg? How did you no, get the, to um Tony Chereau had the manuscript. Um, it had been handed down in the family. The family had long wanted Sam Battle's story to be told, but they didn't quite know what to do with the manuscript. Um, at the time that Sam Battle hired Langston Hughes, um, Hughes was long past his prime years as the um, wonder poet of the Harlem Renaissance, and he happened to be struggling to make a living at the time. Sam Battle paid him $1,500. Langston Hughes was not terribly interested in the project. They worked on it for three years. When they finished, the manuscript was not one that really read like a uh, a compelling narrative book. So publishers rejected it. Now, I will say this. the An editor could very well have worked with the two men, with Langston Hughes and Samuel Battle, and could have turned it into a compelling book. But no editor at the time was interested because publishing houses of the era in 1950 had absolutely no interest in publishing a book about a strong black hero who challenged the prevailing racism of the day, including the NYPD. So the publishers all rejected it, left Sam Battle with no hope of ever having it published, and it was simply put away for 65 years until I came across mm -hmm. Tony Chereau. Now, there was, there was one other copy of it that I did discover after I found out that there'd been the partnership between Battle and Langston Hughes. I went up to Yale University where Langston Hughes' papers are kept, and there was another copy of it in Langston Hughes' papers. And along with the manuscript there, Sam Battle had written out much of his life in longhand on legal pad for Langston Hughes. So there was a wealth of material on which I could draw. 
Wow. Now, you said Sam Battle was a hero. Was he a hero only because he broke the color line, or did he do some other heroic acts? No, he, well, first of all, um, he was a remarkable individual. Um, He was the son of former slaves, born in North Carolina in 1883. He was part of the first post-slavery generation. And he grew up um, and carried with him for his entire life a sense that he would insist on being treated with dignity by everyone. And that's how he carried himself through life, whatever um, enterprise he was involved with, with whomever he was speaking, he would insist on that. Um, his, he, his main accomplishment um, was breaking the color line of the NYPD, a very difficult fight. He weathers incredibly tough circumstances, but he decides that it's, he's not going to be satisfied with that. He, he accepts in his mind the idea that he is carrying uh, the black race on his shoulders, that he must succeed and he must rise. So he wages long fights to prove that he is a super cop so that he can be promoted to sergeant and become the first black sergeant in New York City, lieutenant and become the first black lieutenant in New York City, become a close aide to Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, become New York City's first black parole commissioner, which was then a very elevated position, and in the end, um, become good friends with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. So you see this rise of somebody from very humble roots um, who fights his way all the way through his life to um, to show the way for others and manages to succeed against overwhelming odds. Now, is there any evidence of his benevolence? Uh, was he part of any civic organizations? Yes, his he is the one uh, major tenet of Sam Battle's life was his faith his Christian faith. His father was another remarkable man who was by trade during slavery a uh, brick mason, a a builder, and he was a great craftsman. And because of that, he was able to buy his way out of slavery. He he, He bought his freedom. He then becomes a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And all of Battle's life, he holds a a dear and close relationship with the AME Zion Church. In addition to that, he joins just about every fraternal organization, um, African-American fraternal organization that you can imagine, um, becomes a key part of uh, the improved benevolent order of Elks, which is what the, um, the black Elks were then known as because 
the white elks, the benevolent order of elks, would not allow blacks in. So um, the founders of, uh, of the uh, African-American elks called it the improved order of uh, the benevolent order of the elks. But he's involved with all the civic organizations, uh, all the fraternal organizations, and because he's such a remarkable, yes, such a remarkable personality, he gets to know um, virtually every major figure of um, black history in New York from 1900 through 1950, whether it were the athletes, the writers, the professional people, the entertainers, the gangsters, the politicians, he gets to know everybody, and he becomes deeply, deeply enmeshed in um, the, uh, the the black society of the day, and um, was well known to all of the leaders, and uh, mm-hmm. well liked by all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any particular stories about any of these celebrities in relationships with any other black leaders that you want to share tonight? Well, I can. I, you know, early on when he arrives in New York, which is around the turn of the um, uh, the 20th century, he is simply a, um, uh, a young guy. He leaves the South at 16 on his own. He's adventurous, but he only has an eighth grade education. And all that's open to him in New York as as it was to um, uh, just about all young African-Americans of the time. Um, he could get a job as a houseboy. He could be a servant to um, well-to-do whites. Um, he does that. But while he does that, one of the people he meets is the great Arthur Schomburg. And Arthur Schomburg, uh, as a young man, uh, meets battle and has a um has advice for him he teaches he's teaching him how to play the card game of whist and and he has advice for him which is you know if you want to get someplace you're going to have to become educated you're going to have to learn you're going to have to read you're going to have to read everything that you can possibly read you're going to have to read the books you're going to have to read the newspapers and sam battle he does that he takes Arthur Schomburg's advice and becomes an incredibly uh, well-educated, self-educated man who um, uh, had a, an enormous library by the time he was he was a mature man. Um, among the others, uh, the many many others, um, Bill Bojangles Robinson, the famous world's greatest tap dancer became battle's best friend um in battle's mature life and um the two of them were uh were just totally close buddies and when when uh, bojangles robinson dies battle helps plan his funeral um with all the other you know the big entertainment uh figures of the day when uh jesse owens goes to um Berlin in 1936 in the Olympics, and, you know, he just triumphs. 
he comes home to a less than welcoming America. And Battle puts Jesse Owens up at in Battle's home on Strivers Row when he needs a place to stay in New York. So he gets to know Jesse Owens. He meets Jackie Robinson when Jackie Robinson was still a um, a football player, one of the, America's great college football players um, at UCLA. Um, he mentors Sugar Ray Robinson as a young man when Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, was kind of wavering. Which way was he going to go? With his life, was he going to become a serious boxer? Was he going to get himself in trouble? He was, he was a, a you know a teenager looking for direction, and Battle uh, becomes a mentor to Sugar Ray Robinson and um, stays close friends with him um, for the rest of his life. So uh, I could go on naming the people. Okay. Um, okay. If, well, if they were important, he knew them. Okay. Now we talked about some of the celebrities. Um, let's talk about the other side of the track. He's a celebrity in his own right, Bumpy, the gangster. Yeah, well, Battle, you know, doesn't um, uh, have, uh, as far as I could tell, um, uh, much of a uh, relationship um, or cross paths too much with Bumpy Johnson. That, you know... Okay. Um, I'm not even sure that you know where they where they match up in their in their eras. The person right. that he does um, have the relationship with is a man named Casper Holstein, who was um, the uh, a genius of a man who figured out how to um, legitimize the numbers game, which. Um, you know, today it was it was criminal at the time, but today it's simply the lottery. You know, you can go to the store and buy the ticket. It's the same thing as the numbers game. But Casper Holstein had a genius, and he figured out how to do it in a way that people would trust him. And um, he became um, a very wealthy man, Casper Holstein. He gets kidnapped because huh? Dutch Schultz, the gangster, wants to take over the um, the numbers racket in, in Harlem. And Battle is called on to uh, to solve the kidnapping, and does solve the kidnapping. So he does know people on um, on both sides of the law, but his relationship with Casper Holstein is really one of great benevolence because Holstein was was an unbelievably decent man who essentially gave away his entire fortune to um, to good causes. Okay. Now you mentioned he had a library. Uh, does the family still have the library? Is it no? That's all of that is long gone, as far as I was able to tell. And I actually went uh, and visited um, a few weeks ago um, the house on Strivers Row that Battle lived in, you know, starting in 1922 until his death in 1966. It's just you know one of the fabulous row houses on Strivers Row. But after he dies in 1966, um, his widow, um, Florence, um, moves to California to be with um, their their uh, grandson who had uh, moved there. And there's a fire um, at the house that basically um, destroys whatever was left of Samuel Battle's property. So whatever the books were, 
um, you know, they don't they don't exist anymore, as far as I can tell. That's terrible. Now, are there any parallels from the uh, things that Battle had to see and fight within the police department and in the community to what's going on to today? Yeah, yes, you can. You can you can make so, you know some connections. The first thing first thing I, that I think would would be important to understand is that um, when when Sam Battle uh, decides to join the police force, we're talking um, uh, him joining in 1911. It's early, but it's at that time that the NAACP is coming into formation. And um, he uh, becomes a life member um, very early. When he goes into the police department, the uh, the men of his station house, which was on West 68th Street in Manhattan, and which was known as an incredibly um, anti-black, hostile station house because of the violence that the men there had inflicted on people, in uh, African-Americans who lived in the surrounding community, which was then predominantly African-American. When Battle arrives at the station house, um, the men refuse to speak with him. And they don't just do it out of hostility or to, or to show that they, they're unhappy with his presence. They do it because all cops need to learn from other cops. They need to learn how to make arrests. They need to learn how to stand post. They need to know all the rules that uh, you only learn by experience. And what, what the men of that station house were hoping was that he would violate rules and the um, superiors would charge him and they would drive him out. Um, mm-hmm. before, even before this, they attempted to prevent him from getting on the force by having the police surgeon concoct the idea that he suffered from a heart murmur, which he didn't, and he had to overcome that. The men of the station house um, sent threatening notes to his house. He finds on his uh, bunk in the station house. At that time, police officers on some nights slept in dormitories in the station house because this is well before 911 and well before police cars. So they needed to keep uh, officers on what they called reserve in the station house. And Battle finds on his pillow in, in the station house a, um, a note with a bullet hole in it saying, if, if you don't quit, this is what happens to you. They also enlist a white woman to try to lure Sam Battle into a sexual liaison, which would have been in that time and place just a a fatal error. And of course, he doesn't. Uh, he's uh, he's happily married and he's incredibly faithful to his wife Florence. And and he knows much better than to get involved with this. And finally, what they do is they take his bed and they move it out of the dormitory up to its own room in the station house on a higher floor that was called the flag loft because they hung the American flag there. Um, uh, They stored it there for use whenever they wanted to raise it above the the station house. And two things would happen. 
he he w- would remember that he would look at it and and say, you know, I am a native-born American, and many of these officers who are around me are brand-new immigrants. I have nothing against them as immigrants, but they're getting on the force without any of the trials and tribulations that I'm suffering, and I'm native-born. And he'd look at the flag and he'd say, why? Why are they doing this? He would also study. He used his time alone to study for the sergeant's exam because he said to himself, you know, you guys will not talk to me today. I guarantee that you are going to take orders from me tomorrow. And that all Mm. came true after enormous fighting and struggling to succeed. But isn't that part of history where the immigrants were always um, put in that position to come into right. Immi- the right. black immigrants neighborhood? Were always, and- yes, there's no question. But look at it this way. By the time that um, Sam Battle gets on to the police force, the Irish, they're still immigrants to New York, but they have figured out that the police department, one brings another, one joins, another joins, another joins, and nobody had, um, you know, a, um, the, the, the differences between Irish and Italian and German. There were differences, and there were hostilities, and some felt above and below others. But there was nothing, there was no differentiation with the power and the, the the malignant power that race had. You know, ra- race mm-hmm. is different, right? I, the Italian is mm-hmm. not like in the Irish is one thing, but white America being against blacks, that was a, a whole different order of magnitude. So what he experienced in the station house was a quantum leap, you know, worse than anything that that um, any of the immigrant groups experienced. Wow. Well, we're wrapping it up. Um, I know you had your first book signing at Barnes and Noble. How did it go? Oh, it went, it went uh, terrific. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, it was uh, it was terrific, and I've I've made a number of appearances. You know, since then I'm I am um, due to you know to speak at the um, Schomburg Center in September. And on September. July 1st, okay, do you know the day? Okay. Um, I can get that for you. On July 1st, I had a um, a commemoration ceremony for um, Sam Battle at the Schomburg. And the great thing about it was that um, Samuel Battle Plaza is right at the corner where the Schomburg um, sits, Lenox and okay. 135th. And Langston Hughes is um, his ashes are interred in the um, the floor of the length of the uh, Schomburg atrium. So the commemoration ceremony honoring Sam Battle brought the two of them together in such close proximity that it, that it was uh, just absolutely terrific. Now, um, you know, in terms of uh, you asked about the uh, the appearance at the Schomburg, which is Monday, uh, September twenty first, at um, six thirty p.m. 
Wonderful. I definitely want to be there. I want a signed copy of the book. Um, I'm excited. Dawn Hill is a great publicist. I want to thank her for having you on. Uh, do you have any parting words in honor of Mr. Sam Battle? The, the only th- you know, what I say about Sam Battle is in my research, I, I concluded that he was both a good man and a great man who was unfairly written out of history because of his skin color. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Brown, for joining the Gist of Freedom. And you can listen to this show. It will be edited and uh, pristine by tomorrow. You can listen to it, the archives on iTunes, on www.blackhistoryuniversity.com and www.blackhistoryblog.com. Thank you. And this is I Gist appreciate of Freedom. the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. Now we right. have uh, Mr. Preston. Preston. Are you on the line? Hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? And we should have the okay. man, uh, the Million Man March. Are you on the line? Okay. We should have a guest on the line uh, representing the Million Man March. Are you here? 202? No. Okay, so the Million Man March guest is not here. So we're going to edit this show. Hopefully the Million Man March reps will be on soon. And uh, Preston will call it a night. And we'll take it from here, okay? Okay, take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.